Well, good morning again. Thank you guys for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into this sanctuary another week. Thank you for those that are gathered with us at home. Thanks for bringing the church into your living room and your dining room table, wherever you happen to be uh, watching. And as well, on this holiday weekend, on this Labor Day weekend, uh, so glad that you are here, that we get to worship King Jesus. And if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, my name is Jamie, and it's my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. And we have taken a four-week break from our series through the Gospel of John to do this series called habits of joy, this language that we use at Crosspoint as we think about what does it look like to grow as a disciple, what are particular rhythms or habits uh, that can help cultivate that, not to earn the affection of God, all right, that, that's not what these things are about, but rather they're just invitations to experience his grace, and in this battle for joy, because joy feels like it's hard to come by these days, what are the practices, habits, liturgies, rituals, any of those, any of that language you can use um, that might help cultivate joy in us. And so over the last few weeks, we've looked at three of them. We've looked at pulpit, which is the idea of gathering on Sunday morning. And so this rhythm is part of what we're doing right now, all right, that that helps cultivate joy in us. And then we looked at the chair a couple of weeks ago as well. And that idea is you getting time to hear the small, the still voice of Jesus, to be reminded of who you are in the grand scheme of God's story. And so what does it look like to get that time and just the word and in prayer, just you and the Lord communing with one another. And then last week, we looked at the tables. We've got pulpit, chair, table, tables that call to community. And so what we've begun in this past week, as well as one expression of community, as we get in community groups and men's studies and women's studies and youth group and all the various things that, that are happening, both in people's homes and here on Wednesday nights, that's just one aspect of it. But we are members of one another, and so we're created for community. And so this morning, we wrap up by looking at this practice, this invitation where actually I think it all sort of builds towards is that there's this invitation to engage in the mission that God has for us. And the way we talk about that is the square. So to think about the public square, that we're not meant to just sit back as the church and stay huddled together, but rather we are called as God's missionaries out into the broader community. And so even on this Labor Day weekend, where most of you will have the day off, or many of you will tomorrow, on a day of rest, we're going to talk about work, okay? Um, and in really what it is is a framing of the idea of work, vocation, right? This Latin word vocare, where you get the idea of, of calling. And I need you to understand this. We need to be very, very clear. We're not talking about exclusively the work that you get compensated for, that there's a calling that the Lord has put on your life and my life as a follower of Jesus, that your work matters. Whether you get a paycheck for it or not, there's a high and noble calling, all right? Some of you are parents here, all right? I'm guessing your children this week didn't send you a paycheck to say, thank you for caring for me, right? That doesn't make it not a job, not a calling, right? There's this, there's this high calling to all areas, all aspects of life. And so we're gonna look at it, maybe a way to think about it is this call to commission. Like we join in, we're participating in the mission of God. And to help us do that, we're gonna start where it would be very natural to, to talk about this. We need to start by talking about bagels, okay? Um, which I know is right where you thought we were gonna go uh, th this morning. And so as you think about this particular item, and if you're like, hey, I don't like bagels or I can't have that, you can pick your own other like food item. But have you ever considered for a moment what it actually takes to get a simple bagel like on your plate to enjoy for breakfast? 
Have you ever considered that? I, I don't spend a lot of time considering those things. All right, I might just think, wow, it sounds amazing. I'm now actually kind of hungry. I would like this. We'll get some good cream cheese. We'll smear it all over, over that. That sounds amazing. And in his book called God at Work, Gene Edward Veith Jr., it's a name right there, all right, this theologian writes, he literally opens his book by talking about bagels. And why he's doing that is he wants us to understand, and I'll read part of this quote uh, for you in a moment, part of the opening pages, this idea that everyone is contributing, all right? And so even the simple, mundane things of life, it doesn't just magically appear. So here's what he writes. He says this, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, and he's talking about how Martin Luther, the great reformer, viewed all of work. Like it was part of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, that brought about this idea of the priesthood of all believers, that we all have access to God. And not only that, it means that every single one of us have work that's valuable in the kingdom of God. There had been this notion before of the sacred and the secular, and of course, like the priests, the church, they were the you know, sacred work, and that's God's work, and everybody else just kind of did this secular whatever sort of stuff. The Bible knows nothing of that, and Luther was one that helped kind of reignite to, to recapture that idea. So here's what he uh, says. He says, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, observed Luther, we ask God to give us this day our daily bread, and he does give us our daily bread. He does it by means of the farmer who planted and harvested the grain, the baker who made the flour into bread, the person who prepared the meal. We might today add the truck drivers who hauled the produce, the factory workers in the food processing plant, the warehouse men, the wholesale distributors, the stock boys, the lady at the checkout counter. Also playing their part are the bankers, the futures investors, advertisers, lawyers, agricultural scientists, mechanical engineers, and every other player in the nation's economic system. All of these were instrumental in enabling you to eat your morning bagel. Interesting. Have you thought about that, right? Like all of that, and he continues, he says this, though God could give it to us directly by a miraculous provision, as he once did for the children of Israel when he, led them to, when he provided them daily manna, here's the key. This is what we're gonna unpack this morning. God has chosen to work through human beings who in their different capacities and according to their different talents serve each other. This is the doctrine of vocation. And so when we think about the table, it's an invitation to these rhythms, these practices to be engaged using the time that we have, the talents that the Lord has given us, the particular financial resources. Like, how can we leverage those things to be on mission with God? And in order to understand that, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. And so this morning, we're going to be in several different texts, primarily anchored in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so I would invite you to go on your phone. You can go to cplife.church. You'll see the texts that are there. If you go to cplife.church and click sermon notes, it'll take you to a page where there's space for you to take your own notes and see the text that will be in, any of the slides that are put up, that will be there as well. And so as we get into this, I want to start by looking at, okay, what is God's plan and intertwined in that our purpose? We, our culture, like, we are longing, like, we're desperate for meaning. Feels like that sort of reservoir of meaning, it's got, it feels like it's kind of dried up right now. And I think this is massively contributing to our lack of joy, that we struggle to find meaning. And the Lord is inviting us to recapture a biblical view, a biblical theology of work, of vocation, of calling. And again, some of that you're going to get compensated for. Some of that you're not going to get compensated for, but it's all significant. So we'll look at the plan and the purpose. And then we will see there's a turn in the story as we look at the opening chapters of Genesis 
that there is a problem. How does that problem get overcome? And what sort of dysfunction does that lead to even as we think about work? And we'll end by looking at what is the Lord's provision or maybe the power that he provides that we might be able to engage in all that the Lord has called us into. And so as we begin, we'll start at the beginning. Um, again, very profound seminary understanding here. The Bible begins in Genesis chapter one. I mean, that's just profound, except here's the reality. As silly as that might sound, so often we start talking about things in the world with Genesis three. Well, things are broken, things are messed up, things are, yeah, I mean, that's all true, right? There can be a hearty amen after that. It's like, yeah, I mean, things are broken, they're weighty, messed up, tons of chaos, tons of darkness. But if we're going to understand our calling, not only in this lifetime, but in the life to come, we have to understand how the Bible starts. And so I'm gonna read a few selections out of the opening chapters of Genesis. And as you, if you were to open up your Bible and you were to begin to read, read from page one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like there's this rhythm, there's this cadence to things. As God begins to create, creates the heavens and the earth, he's creating the animals, the plants, he's doing all that. And at the end of each day, there's this refrain, right? It's good. The Lord looks out over what he's created, and it's good. And then as we get to the end of chapter one, as the creation story is coming to a close, we read these words about God's plan, all right? God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning the sixth day. The pattern is disrupted in that moment. What had been a declaration of it is good there's this additional word that's added here. Oh, but the Lord looked out and it's very good. Well, what was so incredible about this day is that's when he created humanity. That's when he created man and woman. That's when he created us. And as impressive as this world is, think about it. God on those days created things like the Grand Canyon, all right? Whatever the, like, feature of the earth that you think is like super impressive, right? The depths of the oceans, all of that. And he called it, wow, that's good. Like the Lord kicked back, and he's like, that's been a good day. That's good, that, that's actually pretty impressive. And then you came along, and he's like, very good, all right? So as impressive as things are out in creation, humanity, it's from what we looked at last week, where C.S. Lewis would say, you've never, ever in your life met a mere mortal. Like, wow, person sitting next to you, just amazing, right? You just, after the service, just I was going to say hug and embrace, whatever you need to do during these COVID times. You can let them know that they're amazing, right? Like that's what the scriptures are communicating, very good. And so there's a calling then for these very good creatures that he's made, that is humanity. And as I mentioned a moment ago, the Bible doesn't know anything about this divide between sort of sacred and secular, all right, kind of the material or spiritual. We tend to take those categories and say, okay, spiritual, like most people probably roll into church in a morning like today, and they're gathered in space, and they're like, okay, yeah, this, we're doing spiritual work. I wouldn't say it's not spiritual, but at the end of the day, like, you're roughly going to spend an hour or so here, depending on how long the sermon goes, right? And so we're going to have these, these times, but you know this, you and I have been given, we've been allotted 168 hours per week. And so if you roughly have an hour of it that's taken up here, and then maybe you give another couple hours to like a community group or a Bible study, and maybe you spend some time with the Lord, you know, 15 minutes before you rush off to work or whatever in the morning. I mean, you've still got, maybe you're at that point, you've got like 160, 162 hours like left in your week. 
And unfortunately, there can be a mindset that says, well, all of those hours, actually, that 167 that's left over after church, well, that's just regular sort of time. And the Bible, what Genesis 131 is telling us, no, like it's all good and it all matters. God created and called it good. And yes, he created you and called it very good. But it doesn't take away from the fact that the stuff of this world and even the mundane things, the things that are on your to-do list that you're not excited about, what Genesis 1 and 2 are going to help us understand is there is a high calling as you engage in those things and then use those things to love and serve one another. Michael Whitmer, in his book, Heaven is a Place on Earth, said it this way. He says, when someone asks how we are doing spiritually, we immediately, what do we do? We examine our prayer lives, perhaps answering the question according to whether or not we had our quiet time this morning. When a preacher exhorts us to return to our first love or to stop being lukewarm Christians, we immediately know what he means. We need to beef up our devotions, expand our prayer list, extend ourselves to more unsaved friends. These things may be the heart of the Christian life, he says, but I wonder whether they aren't overemphasized in some evangelical circles. He's not saying in any way, shape, or form, prayer's bad, reading the Bible's bad, evangelizing your friends, but no. But let's be honest, you and I don't spend the bulk of our time in those things. So what, what do we do with that other time? Does it matter how you filled your time, the things that occupied you in this past week? Like, how are you and I to view that? Well, this idea, this invitation of the square, that's where that comes in. And as this story continues in the book of Genesis, we begin to read how you and I, as described as very good, are also spoken of just a few verses earlier, all right? And what is spoken of, again, this Latin phrase, the imago Dei, that you and I are made in the image of God. And so this is going to communicate a couple things for us, right? For one, it communicates dignity, worth, value, but it also communicates something about dominion, about rule, a certain level of almost sovereignty, of like control over things. Not ultimate sovereignty, that's for God alone, but there is this invitation to have dominion. So we'll get there in a moment. But notice the language here. Genesis 1, 26 to 27 says this, Then God said, let us make man in our image, so there's the communal, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, in our image, according to our likeness, and they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So as we look at that for a moment, as we think about dignity, this is communicating you have worth, value, dignity. You are made in the image and likeness of God. And all week long, you have been probably beat down and your image of yourself has probably fluctuated depending on how you think other people view you or the standards you set for yourself and whether or not you attain those things. And that's no different from the story that the scriptures speak of. In fact, what is happening here, this language, all right, is so loaded, so significant. If you know historically who's writing this, well, Moses is the one that's writing this, all right? Adam and Eve didn't write the book of Genesis, all right? This is many, many years later, many generations later, and God is telling Moses, he's inspiring Moses to write what we know as the book of Genesis. Well, what do you know about Moses? Well, he led God's people out of captivity, out of Egypt, where they were slaves, where they were not seen as people full of worth, value, and dignity. How were they viewed? They were viewed as 
subhuman. You are there to make bricks. And if you didn't reach your quota, you were disposable, you would literally be killed off. Maybe some of you are in sales and you have certain quotas, right? Like you might lose your job or get a dock and pay, but your boss can't kill you for not reaching your quota. But back in the book of Exodus, right, that story of the Egyptians interacting with the Israelites, that's how it went. And so for generation upon generation, you had people that were being beat down. They were told that they weren't, they weren't even, they weren't like the Egyptians. They were subhuman. They were not to be treated with worth, value, and dignity. They were discarded the moment they couldn't produce. And now, God gives a word to Moses to write to a group of people who had been for generations slaves, and he says, you're made in the image and likeness of God. Do you see how revolutionary this was? Do you see how inspiring this was? The group of people would have been like, are you serious? Like, this is who we are? Maybe a way to think about it is there's this royal naming that's taking place. They are being told, you are not your past. You are not defined by your production. You are made in the image and likeness of God. And so again, how do you regard yourself? I hope you at least start with where the Bible does. You're made in the image and likeness of God. And then if you start to get full of yourself, also remember that it tells us that the Lord God fashioned humankind, fashioned the man out of the dirt, all right? So you are both dignified and dirt man simultaneously, right? That's what the Bible communicates. You've got worth, value, and dignity, and yet we are also the created. We're not the creator, lest we get full of ourselves, right? So there's that royal naming, but also with this, with the Imago Dei, I put before you, there is a royal calling. And so this ties so specifically, like as we live as people who understand our identity, all right, we also then understand like what we're called to participate in, all right? So there's sort of this identification, who we are, but also this participation. What are we invited into? And I think it's good, again, to go back and remember the context, remember to who these words are originally being written to, to a group of people that had formerly been slaves, to a group of people that also understood this. That in that time and in that place, when a ruler would rise up and that kingdom would get extended and that, that particular rule would often bring death and devastation and call, call everybody to submit. And if you don't submit, you're killed off. And so the world operates, there's this brutality. And the way a king or a ruler, you know, you eventually get the Romans and the Caesars, like all that, the way that they would maintain control, the way they would remind you that you don't belong to yourself, the way they would remind you that you're here just to produce, the way they would remind you that you actually don't have worth, value, and dignity is they would have statues or icons or these images placed, these inanimate objects they'd have placed around the kingdom. So you roll out, like if you left your house this morning, right, wherever you live, and you rolled out and there was this, this giant like statue there of the person that was the ruler and reigned, like ruled and reigned in your life, it'd be this reminder, your life's not your own. And it was this constant sort of barrage and this, just this reminder of your calling to just produce for that person and how disposable you were. That's how the ancient world worked. There would have been images, icons placed all over. Well, what does our God do? That's what's so fascinating. That's why it's so loaded. It's why it's so important to go back. Not only does our God say you've got dignity, but our God also says you're invited to rule with him. You're invited to participate. You are called to showcase 
Because you're a living, breathing image. You're not the inanimate object made out of stone or wood. You're flesh and blood. You're made in the image of the one true God and King. And he put you as his image in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace, in your family situation, network, all of that. It's not by accident God placed you there. And your invitation now is to point people then to what it looks like to live under the rule and reign, like how you do finances, how you do marriage, relationships, parenting, school, academics, athletics, like all the things. You're a living, breathing image bearer of God, like made in his image and then invited, like you get to participate. You're not this inanimate object, like you got flesh and blood and you're made in God's image. And he looks at you and says, you're very good. And he also says, you're invited to play. And so when we think about the square, when we think about what we're called to, this is what it is driving at. This is why Genesis 1.28 then says things like this. God blessed them. God said to them, to these living, breathing image bearers, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Be fruitful, multiply, have kids, see the generations. And then this begin to fill the earth. God's vision is that the world would be populated with his living, breathing image bearers and that they would participate in subduing the earth, stewarding the things that the Lord has given to us to take the raw materials of the world and help bring order and beauty and harmony to God's good creation. Genesis 2.15 says it this way. The Lord God took the man, placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. So maybe a way to summarize your calling and mine according to that is you're a gardener and a guardian. You're meant to cultivate, you're meant to steward, and you're also meant to guard, to watch, to keep, to look out over this world, this good world that the Lord has created. And in every interaction, right, when you take care of your home or you care for kids or a family member or a friend, right, you cook a meal, like all of that is loaded with significance, when you go home this afternoon, maybe you, maybe you vacuum your living room, you're having dominion, right? When you are gathered and maybe you're like cooking a, a meal, like you've taken the raw materials of the world and you have like that bagel that we described, right? Like you're engaging, you're serving humanity, you are having dominion. All of these things are loaded with significance. Yes, they're everyday and they're ordinary, but they matter, and you are helping to showcase what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of God. So you've had these questions, right? Like you're invited to you know, some sort of gathering, a party, or you're sitting next to somebody on a plane, and eventually in the small talk, the question comes up, hey, so what do you do, right? Um, that is always, in most of the cases, a conversation killer for me, all right? Sitting next to the person on the plane, and like, what do you do? Uh, pastor of a church, um, they hit the flight attendant button. Can I get another seat, right? That's usually how that seems to, to go. But how should we answer this question? What do you do? Because Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is giving us a way to think about this and to answer that question that has nothing to do with whether or not you get a paycheck. It can include that, and it, you should be thinking in these ways with the ways that you earn a living, but in everything that you do. So next time somebody asks you, what, if, what do you do? What if you responded something like this? Oh, what do I do? I am part of a global movement to bring order, beauty, and harmony out of the creation and the chaos of this world. What do you do, right? Like, what if you just put that back on them? Like, that's your invitation as an image bearer. Everything, like, start to view it through that lens. 
And I, I understand that sometimes it's gonna be harder to connect those dots. But as we opened up with, and thinking about something like a bagel, right? If you can contribute to something like that that would feed and nourish, like there, every job has the opportunity, every calling, whether you're paid for it or not, to engage in bringing beauty and harmony and order. All right, and sometimes it's with the raw materials that are already good, and then also because we live in a fallen world, there's this chaos. And how do we restore order there? And so with this, we see this all occurred before Genesis 3, which means there's no fall, there's no sin, there's no brokenness at this point. Work was part of God's good creation. Work will be part of God's good, beautiful, renewed creation. Some of us will, I've said this before, all right, but it's helpful I think, to just drive this home for no one else except maybe even just myself, if nothing else, all right? I am massively unemployed the moment Jesus comes back, right? I have a job because there's brokenness and chaos in the world, all right? A lot of us have particular roles that are helping because there's brokenness and to fix things, right? But not everybody, Right, So if you're here this morning, I've said this before, but I think it's helpful to, to emphasize again, like if you're somebody that fits the kind of what is stereotypically talked about, maybe like, oh, you're the struggling artist. Well, an artist takes the raw materials of the world and fashions something beautiful. I'm getting coaching from the struggling artist who won't be struggling anymore in the new heavens and the new earth, right? Because there's no brokenness. There's nothing to fix. I mean, this is where the story's heading, but there will be work. And so if you've got this notion of like, no, like, New heavens, new earth is like perpetual retirement. I'm sitting on a beach. Get that image out of your mind. The beach is terrible, by the way. Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. All right, but it is not just this perpetual vacation. It, there will be work, but there won't be toil and frustration because that's where we see where this goes, right? In our calling, there is a problem when we can say sort of like when work becomes work. And so we'll just look at a couple things briefly. You know the story, right? Adam and Eve, they reach for the fruit, and what are they saying? Our identity, creating the image of God, somehow that's not enough. Our participation as royal image bearers, meant to take things further, meant to take the prototype of the garden. The rest of the world was uninhabited. The rest of the world was chaos. They were called to go and to steward that and to make everything like the Garden of Eden. And they said, no, we don't like our identity as image bearers. We don't like the role. We actually want to be God ourselves. And from that moment, creation began to unravel. But that doesn't mean our calling for work was over. It means that our calling is gonna, there's going to be frustration. It means that, you know, when somebody talks about, oh, somebody's got a case of the Mondays, that's a real thing because there's toil. It's hard. It's difficult. Genesis 3, 17 and 19, and he said to the man, because you listened to your wife Eve and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by the means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So you're still going to be able to survive, sustenance, all that, but it's going to be hard. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. So just a couple things with this. In light of this calling, we've got to be realistic, right? Like, I don't think it would do any good to just say, all right, woohoo, image bearers, here, here we go, and set us up to not expect that there's, there's going to be frustrations because there's brokenness out there, and there's also brokenness in here. Like, I bring that to bear on any bit of work that I'm doing, and so do you. So the calling is to avoid kind of two extremes. One would be 
idleness, and the other would be this idolatry, all right? And so idleness, we see, like Paul writes to a group of people, this church in Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says this. He says, in fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, well, he should not eat. For we have, that, for, he says, for we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and to provide for themselves. Just for a moment. This is not saying that somebody doesn't run up against hard times or they can't work. Or for, like There is a call for compassion and mercy and grace and benevolence and all of that. What this is speaking to is a group of people that were convinced Jesus is coming back any day now, and so I don't have to do anything. They were taking this mindset that this world didn't matter. It's all about the spiritual, all right? So they're just floating out there, all right? Kind of disembodied spirits. They're like, that's where the story's heading. So work doesn't matter. Relationships don't matter. And they were sitting back, and Paul's like, stop it. Like, there's good work to do. So on the one hand, we don't want to veer towards idleness, Okay. You guys remember this amazing movie, Office Space? You guys remember this? Um, Some of you might have seen it. It's been a long time. But in this particular scene, you might recall this guy there kind of lounging back. His name's Peter. Um, He's being called in by the two Bobs. All right, they're both named Bob. They're these consultants for this company to understand how the office functions and what what things might be like. You know, are they being proficient and all all that stuff? They're like, well, talk to us, Peter, about your, your kind of a normal day at work. He's like, oh, okay. And he's like... I generally get in about 15 minutes late. I come in the back door to avoid my boss. And then I sit at my desk, and I'll just kind of zone out. And they're like, what do you mean zone out? He's like, well, I just kind of stare at my desk for a good hour. It kind of looks like I'm working, but I'm not. And they're like, oh, really? And he's like, yeah, I'll do that throughout the day for at least a good another hour after lunch. He's like, you know what? All told, probably in a given week, I work a solid 15 minutes. And so he's just, you know, sharing this. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, And at the end of this scene, he's like, you know what? It's not that the work is hard or that I can't do it. He's like, I just, I don't care. It's a, it's it's an issue of motivation, he tells them. There's this idols. That should never be the case for the Christian, that the work we have to do matters. And yet we can go the other extreme. Are you asking work to then be your functional savior? So this move from an idleness or laziness into idolatry of I've got to work, I've got to produce. Buying into the old Egypt narrative that you are what you produce, forgetting that you're an image bearer, forgetting that you are called the gospel-informed work. There's nothing for you to earn. It's all been earned by Jesus, but now we live and serve and love God and love other people in glad response to what he has done. But that question is worth asking again. Are you asking work to be your functional savior? Are you using work to make a name for yourself? Or are you engaged in work, whether paid for or paid by it or not, to love God, to expand his kingdom, to love and serve other people, to contribute to the broader culture? Advances in technology are amazing. There was an advance in technology that occurred very early in the book of Genesis, and it's called the brick, right? We think of that as kind of basic, like why the brick isn't that important, but like this was revolutionary technology. And so the groups of people began fashioning these bricks, right? They're building structures. But you know what it leads to. By Genesis 11, you have this account. And they said, this is the Tower of Babel, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky, It's not a problem to build big buildings. It's not a problem to use the new technology of the day that is the brick. It says, let's make a name for ourselves. 
Otherwise, we'll be scattered throughout the earth. Work is moving away from God's original design and being used now to bring glory to ourselves. And so we will sacrifice. We'll give insane amount of hours. I mean, studies even now, part of why in certain sectors the economy has done so well in this pandemic, I'm not saying all aspects of it because it's been hard in a lot of sectors, but in certain ones it has thrived. So many people stay at home and bosses are commenting, they're like, we've never had our people so productive because you never leave work and you're just on all the time. So we're dealing with this reality. It's hard to shut that off. And it is even harder when we get the accolades, the pats on the back, when we see you know, the income at the end of the month. Oh, way to go. When we see certain quotas or things, we've actually achieved that. It stirs something in us and we begin to make a name for ourselves and work becomes our functional savior. And if we think about losing that, we would just be destroyed. And so we've elevated it up. At the end of the day, the way we're gonna find joy and meaning and purpose is going after loving God and serving other people with what the Lord has given to us. Viktor Frankl lived through the Holocaust. Uh, he is this uh, psychologist, psychoanalyst. Like he developed, he wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in it, he's describing his time dealing, seeing just the atrocities of the Nazi regime, all the horrific things. And one of the things he began to observe is like when you lose meaning, when you lose purpose, how quickly things began to just spiral. And he's saying, we are created for this meaning. But the thing is, if we go after, like, oh, I gotta find meaning, I've gotta make it, I've gotta, I've gotta get this meaning for myself, we'll actually miss it. It's actually when we're engaged in love and service of other people. Now, I don't believe, I don't know if he was, I don't actually know where he stood with, with Jesus, but these points that he's making, I think, are helpful. He says this, and it's a little bit wordy, but hear this quote, he says, being human always points and is directed to something like to flourish as a human or to someone other than oneself, be it a meaning to fulfill or another human being to encounter. The more one forgets himself by giving himself to a cause to serve or another person to love, the more human he is and the more he actualizes himself. What is called self-actualization is not an attainable aim at all for the simple reason that the more one would strive for it, the more he would miss it. In other words, self-actualization is possible only as a side effect of self-transcendence. That's a lot of big words and whatnot, but I think what he's getting at is something the Bible speaks of, espouses, part of God's creation. It's like we're called what? To love God and to love other people and to use the resources that you have been given to work, to engage, to bring about flourishing, to have dominion, all of that. And when you're engaged in that for the glory of God and the good of other people, you actually do find meaning. But if you twist that and suddenly you're like, I gotta find meaning, therefore I'm gonna go and do this, you're actually focused on self and you won't actually get what your heart ultimately longs for. We won't find that joy. It's found in this upside down kingdom that the Lord invites us into. And so let's close with, with that, because at the end of the day, I'd put before you the power that we need to live this out, the provision that the Lord makes for us. Maybe a way to think about it is this. You and I can't work well until we actually rest well. When we actually come to the point of understanding what Jesus has done for us, 
Right now, my guess is some of you have mental lists in your mind. All right, I guess mental would be in the mind. You have lists in your mind. Some of you have lists on your phone. Some of you have lists on paper. Some of you have taken what little scrap of paper this morning because something popped into your head while this was going on and you had to write it out. Not judging, I'm just saying that's how the mind works sometimes, right? And so we have all of these things that we need to attend to. Because my guess is that there were things on your list this past week that you actually didn't get done, all right? That there are open loops. And the only person who's never had an open loop, the only person who's ever actually gotten everything done on his to-do list, if we want to think about it that way, is the Lord Jesus himself, the one who was perfectly obedient to the Father, the one who lived a sinless life, the one who was so obedient that it took him all the way to a Roman cross, and it was there that he accomplished the work that the Lord had for him this determination to go there and to be crucified, to die in your place and in my place, and there hanging on that cross to cry out these words. It is finished. There's this perpetual sense for us where it's like it never feels like enough. There's always more work to do. And there's that slippery slope then of, of not, we don't want to be idle, but we don't want to give in to idolatry. And what we need to do is come back and see at the end of the day, I've got that thing on my list that I didn't get to. And guess what? The world's not gonna fall apart if Jamie doesn't go and do this. Now, it's not a call to laziness. You can't use that every, play that card all the time. Well, the world's not gonna fall apart. Well, you might lose your job if you don't do it, right? I mean, those things do happen. But at the end of the day, we need to look and see, okay, the only one who ever perfectly did his job and saw it all the way through to the end is the Lord Jesus himself. That he said, it is finished. And when he rose three days later, he conquered Satan's sin and death. And now we get to live in glad, like submission and response to that. It's why Jesus would say, we're going to be in this passage in a few weeks in John 17. Jesus spoke these things. He looked up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. It's John's way of saying, all right, the hour refers to the hour of Jesus' death. It's the cross. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. How's he viewing work? How's he doing it? To glorify the Father. Since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. He's thinking not about himself, the glory of the Father, and eternal life for us. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on earth, and here's the words, by completing the work you gave me to do. When we understand that, when we rest in that, that will actually fuel our work. Some things you'll get paid for, some things you won't, some things you'll be praised for, some things you won't, some things will be completely behind the scenes and no one will ever know, but the Lord Jesus himself will. That's the biblical call. That's why Paul would write in Colossians chapter three, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. So whatever thing you have on your list this week, whoever it involves, whether menial, mundane, or some big grandiose plan, some big presentation you gotta give, or just, I gotta mow the yard, I gotta clean the dishes, I gotta take the trash out, got to make a meal for this person, whatever it happens to be. There's opportunities there to showcase. You're an image bearer, dominion, all of that. Like that is the high calling. So we'll close with this. The calling is to be agents of God's peace and reconciliation. 
Cornelius Planninga, in his book, Engaging God's World, said it this way, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation and justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than just peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. As a matter of fact, the area over which two armies declare a ceasefire may be acres of smoldering ruin. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, all under the arch of God's love. Shalom, in other words, is the way things are supposed to be. That's our job description. That's what we get to be about for the glory of God and the good of other people. So let me pray for us, and I'll tell us how we're going to continue in the service. I'm going to close in prayer by reading from Every Moment Holy. It's called a Liturgy for Domestic Days. It's a prayer here. So if you bow your heads, let me pray this for us. May this shape our mindset. Many are the things that must be daily done. Meet me, therefore, O Lord, in the doing of the small repetitive tasks, in the cleaning and ordering and maintenance and stewardship of things, of dishes, of floors, of carpets and toilets and tubs, of scrubbing and sweeping and dusting and laundering, that by such stewardship I might bring greater order to my own life and to the lives of any I am given to serve, so that in those ordered spaces bright things might flourish, fellowship and companionship, creativity and conversation, learning and laughter and enjoyment and health. As I steward the small daily tasks, May I remember these good deeds and so discover in my labors the promise of the eternal hopes that underlie them. High King of heaven, you showed yourself among us the servant of all, speaking stories of a kingdom to come, a kingdom in which those who spend themselves for love, even in the humblest of services, will not be forgotten, but whose every service lovingly rendered will be seen from that far vantage as the planting of a precious seed blooming into eternity. And so I offer this small service to you, O Lord, For you make no distinction between those acts that bring a person the wide praise of their peers and those unmarked acts that are accomplished in a quiet obedience without accolade. You see instead the heart, the love, and the faithful stewardship of all labors, great and small. And so in your loving presence, I undertake this task. O God, grant that my heart might be ordered aright, knowing that all good service faithfully rendered is first a service rendered unto you. Receive then this my service, that even in the midst of labors that hold no happiness in themselves, I might have increasing joy. Amen.